Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of All Crime, No Cattle, a Texas true crime podcast. I am Shay. And I'm Erin. Well, and you know, last time we left off on a bit of a cliffhanger. And I know I'm very intrigued to find out what else is going on in this case. We learned a lot last time. We have a lot of interesting, compelling directions we're going. But I want to get to the end of this story. Yes, there is still so much of the story left to tell. But first, let's go into a recap of part one. Equestrian and socialite Joan Robinson Hill died of a sudden mysterious illness in March of 1969. Joan's father, wealthy oil man Ash Robinson, accused Joan's husband, Dr. John Hill, of murdering her, and rumors swirled around Houston that John fed Joan poisoned pastries. Evidence, however, was lacking, and two grand juries failed to indict John for murder. The DA's office found a different charge to level at John murder by omission. The state now argued that John was responsible for Joan's death because he failed to treat her properly or take her to the hospital in a timely manner. This charge was taken to a third grand jury, which elected to indict John, making this the first case of murder by omission in Texas history. Anne Kurth, Joan's mistress turned wife turned ex-wife, had claimed at the third grand jury that John admitted to her that he had killed Joan and that he tried to murder Anne as well. Now, grand jury proceedings are held in secret, so no one outside of the grand jury knew exactly what Anne said, but they knew that whatever it was, it would be bad for John. So John's defense team, Richard Racehorse Haynes and Don Fullenweider, fiercely tried to block her from testifying at trial. They argued that anything Anne had to say about her relationship with John would be covered by spousal privilege, and that any and that any communication between them was confidential and therefore not admissible in court. And by the way, spousal privilege still applies to events within a marriage, even if the couple has since divorced. The state, represented by I.D. McMaster and Ernie Ernst, fought equally hard for Anne to be able to testify, arguing that John tried to harm Anne, and this violence negated spousal privilege. 
They said that they needed Anne to testify to help establish John as a man who harmed both of his wives. Eventually, Anne refined her grievances against John into a single story in which she claimed John tried to kill her, and the judge decided to allow her to tell this story on the stand. Wow, so we're finally going to get all the juicy details that, that the grand jury got to hear, but like in trial. Not really. The grand jury had lots of juicy details to go on. That's how grand juries are. Um, there aren't rules against hearsay. Testimony rules are very lax as, mm. appear, as compared to an actual murder trial. Gotcha. So obviously what is allowed in a grand jury proceeding is going to be completely different than what is actually allowed at a real trial. Yeah, it's going to be a more refined, like maybe like uh, there's going to be omissions and some of the details. It's, it's going to be like a very produced version of the story. Yes. Prosecutors were happy that Anne was going to be allowed to take the stand, but secretly they were still nervous about her testifying. You see, over the months, Anne had told them many stories about John that they found difficult to believe, perhaps even a little outlandish. For example, Anne told prosecutors that John had confessed to her what he'd done to Joan. She said John explained to her that he'd taken samples from patients at his hospital, including feces, urine, blood, and pus from a boil, mixed them all together, then cultured the concoction in three petri dishes. She said John told her that he laced Joan's eclairs with the culture, but said it didn't seem to affect her. He said that he then dosed her with Epicac, a medication that is used to induce vomiting in cases of poisoning. He said that the Epicac is what caused her to start vomiting uncontrollably. When she asked him to give her something to relieve her vomiting, instead of compazine, John said he gave her a shot filled with the rest of the bacterial culture. Anne said he told her, quote, at the end, it was just a matter of time. She had every disease known to man. Well, that seems a little far-fetched, right? Well, prosecutors agreed with you in that regard. Not only did they themselves find the story a little bit implausible, they also knew that the judge wouldn't allow this accusation to be made on the stand anyway. Obviously, you can't just get in the stand and make any accusations that you want. That's not allowed. Yeah. So they instructed Anne to leave this part out of her testimony. They told her she could talk about finding the Petri dishes, but she was to leave out John's statements about what he had done with them. Prosecutors instructed Anne to remain calm, tell her story about the act of violence truthfully and simply with no embellishments. John's murder trial began in February 1971, almost two years after Joan's death. McMaster's opening statement was a strong condemnation for John. Quote, the state expects to show that the defendant, realizing his wife Joan Hill's condition, intentionally and with malice aforethought, failed to properly treat Joan Hill and failed to provide timely hospitalization for her in order that she would die. Joan's friend Van Maxwell testified first. She described the scene at the Hill House the Saturday before Joan died, about how Joan had found out about John's secret apartment and had stated out loud in front of John that she wanted a divorce. Van described Joan as being in good health that Saturday night. The state was trying to set up a clear timeline here, that Joan was fine until she mentioned divorce in front of John. She became sick the very next day. The Hill's housekeeper, Effie, testified next. She told of how on Monday, John instructed her not to go into Joan's room even to check on her. And since he was gone most of the day himself, 
That meant that Joan had been left alone all day in the extremes of her illness. She repeated how she didn't believe that John had been with Joan or in the house at all on Monday night into Tuesday morning. Again, the suggestion here that prosecutors wanted to make was that John was most likely with Anne that night instead of taking care of his dreadfully sick wife. Yeah, I think Effie's part of this whole story and her testimony is vital for the murder of omission charge because I think like she has the most evidence of John's behavior and lack of care during this entire situation. You know, you are absolutely right. But what's interesting is Effie actually finished her testimony by saying that she liked the Hills and that she and her husband would happily go back to work for John. Uh, What? Yeah, so her testimony was very damning to him in some senses. But at the same time, she was also a very good character witness for John. So it's interesting how that worked out. Yeah. It's weird that her story was both beneficial to the prosecution as well as John's defense. The 10th day of the trial was the testimony everyone wanted to hear when Anne Kurth finally took the stand. The prosecutor first asked Anne about how John felt about his first wife. She answered, quote, he hated her. He couldn't stand to be around her. She said John told her that reconciling with Joan was just a ruse. And the whole time he kept promising Anne that they'd be together soon. Anne said that about five or six days before Joan's death, she and John went to his apartment. And in the bathroom, she discovered three Petri dishes sitting under a lamp. She said that inside the Petri dishes was a red substance that was covered with white spots. She said John told her that the room needed to be kept warm because he was performing an experiment and that he hurried her out of the room. Later, she went to the fridge where she found two boxes of French pastries. She said that she called out to John to tease him that he didn't get the kind that she liked. She said he came running from the other room to tell her not to eat the pastries. Mm. Okay, well, there's some, there's some details in here, like with the pastries and stuff, that, that seem to corroborate suspicions about the pastries being yeah. part of the delivery system if is, she was poisoned. And this is the thing. Anne was actually on a very tight leash, and they were able to get in a lot of these little details that this, this first, because this was all what she testified to during the first day of, of her testimony. They were able to get these things in, even though technically the judge said that she was only really supposed to be testifying about that one act of violence. Ah, So the prosecution was able to kind of slide all of these other details in about the Petri dishes and about all of that. Yeah, but it is interesting, though, how they were able to sneak that in. Yeah. Well, next, Anne recounted the act of violence where she said that John tried to kill her. She said that it happened the early morning of June 30th, 1969, just a few weeks after they had wed. Anne said that John had gotten into a bad mood at dinner, complaining that people were giving him dirty looks and gossiping about him, and he asked if she'd like to go for a drive. She agreed, and she said John drove them around aimlessly for several hours as he listened to classical music. At about two or three in the morning, John stopped the car, and she realized that they were just outside of Chatsworth Farm. Anne said that John pointed at it and said, quote, that's where someone lived who doesn't live anymore. She said he started up the car and began speeding it towards a bridge. And now, neither do you, he screamed as he crashed the car into the side of the bridge. Anne said she wasn't wearing her seatbelt and was able to leap to John's side of the car, avoiding the impact which pulverized the passenger side. She said John looked disappointed that she'd survived 
and reached into his coat and brought out a hypodermic needle. She said he attacked her, trying to plunge the needle into her chest. Anne said she fought him hard and he dropped the needle, but reached into his pocket and pulled out a second one and came after her with it again. The prosecution asked if John was attempting to treat her or harm her. Anne responded that she knew that John was trying to harm her because of something he told her immediately before. Anne paused and then blurted out, He told me how he had killed Joan with a needle. This whole scenario is wild and crazy, uh, but I, she's, she just said on the stand that he killed Joan with a needle? Like, just said it? She just makes a declaration like that? I thought she wasn't supposed to do that. She wasn't. This was absolutely not something she was supposed to say, nor had she ever really said this before in any other accusations against John. Like, she'd obviously told stories previously that John had said that he had killed Joan with this needle. But again, you can't just make these wild accusations on the stand in a murder trial. Your, Your words have to be sort of cleared by the judge. And she was not cleared to say this horrible accusation of a confession of murder on the stand. John's attorneys, who had been objecting strenuously throughout Anne's entire testimony, immediately requested a mistrial, saying that her words were prejudicial and inflammatory. After a short recess, the judge granted the motion for a mistrial. Wow. Yeah. So after all of this, there was a mistrial because Anne just couldn't mind her words. (laughs) Outside the courtroom, John expressed his frustration over the mistrial, saying that he'd wanted to be found not guilty so he can move on with his life. And the thing is, he probably would have been acquitted. The jurors were polled, and it appeared as though, even after Anne's testimony, they were going to acquit him. So not only had Anne caused a mistrial, but her statements hadn't even done the damage she hoped they would against John. People didn't believe her. They really hurt the case more than they did any help. Okay. Yeah, basically. If John was disappointed about the mistrial, he was able to ease his tensions with something much more celebratory. Shortly after, he asked his legal team if he could marry Connie Lowesby. And this is his current girlfriend who is supporting him, like, wholeheartedly, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. His attorneys warned that it might hurt John in the future should he be tried again, but they gave him his blessing. And so, just four months after the mistrial, John married for a third time, and Connie moved into the Hill House to live with John and Robert, as well as Myra, John's mother. So we have a big happy family here at the Hill House now. Myra had moved in with John just after Joan's death, and she had lived in the house during John's nine-month marriage to Anne. Myra and Anne absolutely had hated each other, and Myra had not been a big fan of Joan either. But Myra and Connie got along very well. Connie was also said to be a wonderful, caring stepmother to Robert. She even opened up her own music school called the Orpheus Music School, where she taught lessons on several instruments. And while John's practice had dried up to practically nothing in advance of the murder trial, the mistrial had apparently eased people's minds about the good doctor, and his practice was starting to recover once again. So things were looking up for John. He now had the perfect family he always wanted. Eventually, John's next trial became scheduled for November of 1972, about a year and a half after the mistrial. 
John was worried, naturally, but anyone could clearly see his case was far from a slam dunk. And even if there wasn't yet another last-minute schedule change, his chances for acquittal were fairly good. Meanwhile, Ash was fuming about the mistrial. He'd wanted John to be put away for life. His grief was magnified by his estrangement from his grandson, Robert. Once the accusations that John had murdered Joan had been leveled, John forbade the little boy to see his grandparents, which had been crushing to Ash. He desperately wanted to get custody of Robert, but even with all of his money, there wasn't anything he could do. Meanwhile, John was personally convinced that Ash was pushing the charges against him in order to get custody of Robert and control of Joan's estate, which was worth about $400,000. Which again, this is back in the day, so that's a lot of money. That's a lot, even more today, yeah. Yeah. But John tried to offer a solution. You see, back in 1971, he had filed a $10 million slander suit against Ash. He offered to drop that suit as well as allow Ash and Ray regular visitation with Robert, if only Ash would get the DA's office to end its pursuit against him. But Ash refused. It seemed as if nothing was more important to Ash than getting revenge against the person he felt was responsible for his daughter's death. In September of 1972, two months before John's trial was set to begin, a national conference for plastic surgeons was scheduled to take place in Las Vegas at the famous Stardust Resort and Casino, and John planned to attend with Connie. Beforehand, though, the couple flew up to Seattle, Connie's hometown, to go to a wedding. Robert stayed home, looked after by Myra, so John and Connie enjoyed their mini vacation together. In fact, they were having so much fun in Seattle that when it came time to fly to the conference in Las Vegas, they decided to play hooky and instead take a little trip to San Francisco. Their quick trip turned to several days, and John ended up missing the great majority of the conference, only flying in on the second to the last day. Back home in Houston, Myra received a phone call at the Hill residence on Saturday, September 23rd. The caller, who identified himself as James Gleason, asked if Dr. Hill was home. Myra said no, John was out of town, but that he was expected back the following evening, Sunday, September 24th, at around 7.30. Myra asked the caller if he was a patient of John's. The caller said no, but that he needed to speak with Dr. Hill urgently. Then again, on Sunday night, at around 6.30, Myra received another phone call from the person identifying himself as James Gleason. She told him again that she expected John would be home in about an hour. At 7.15, the doorbell rang, and Robert and Myra excitedly ran to the door expecting to welcome home John and Connie early and hear all about their trip. But they opened the door to see a man wearing a green piece of cloth over his face, standing there with a gun in his hand. The man announced, this is a robbery, and pointed the gun at Robert. Robert looked like he was going to start screaming, and the man rushed in and grabbed him and told him to be quiet and he wouldn't be hurt. Once he had quieted Robert, the man shut and locked the front door and ushered them into the dining room, which directly adjoined the foyer, and made them sit on the floor. The man went to the next room, the kitchen, and came back with a knife. At this, Myra and Robert began to panic, but the man produced a roll of tape and began slicing the tape into pieces, which he then wound around their ankles and wrists. 
He used the knife to cut off parts of Myra's sweater and shoved the material into their mouths, then taped their mouths shut. In an incredible move, though, Robert saw what was happening, and before the tape was placed over his mouth, he licked the area all around his mouth so the tape wouldn't actually stick. That's very prescient of him. Yes. He later actually told detectives that he'd seen the move in a TV show. Huh. Okay. Really interesting, yes. It makes sense, though. Mm-hmm. Around the gag, Myra told the man that Dr. Hill would be home any minute. She said he responded, quote, That's all right. I'll be ready for him. And that's the moment she knew this was not a robbery. This man was in the house to kill her son. She said the man left the room and she could hear him doing something in the living room, which was another room right off from the foyer. After a few agonizing minutes, Myra and Robert heard the sound of a taxi pulling up outside, and they heard John and Connie's voices. The doorbell rang. With all their might, Myra and Robert struggled against their bindings and tried to scream out warnings for John and Connie not to enter the house. The man came storming back into the dining room and kicked Myra directly in the throat, and then turned and kicked Robert in the side of the head. He then left the room, heading in the direction of the front door. Connie would later describe what happened next. The door to her home opened, and a man wearing a green cloth around his head was there, brandishing a gun. The man lunged for Connie, grabbing her blouse and necklace, and said, This is a robbery. John rushed up and was able to push himself between them, breaking the man's grasp on Connie. She turned and bolted for a neighbor's house to try to get help. Robert and Myra heard the sounds of an intensive struggle as flower vases and other items in the richly furnished foyer tumbled to the floor. Then came the sounds of four gunshots and a cry of pain that sounded like John's. And then, the worst sound of all, came the sound of silence. Because of his trick, Robert was able to pull the tape from his mouth and spit the gag out and make it to the phone in the kitchen, where he dialed the operator and reported that his father had been shot. Still bound, he hobbled into the foyer, where he found his father face down and unmoving in a pool of blood. Oh my god. Yeah. Like, so brave of him to, like, be able to get there to the phone and do all that and call 911. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Okay. Meanwhile, Connie, in her flight from the house, had also heard the gunfire. She contacted authorities and then placed a phone call to Don Fullenweider, one of John's attorneys, who just happened to live right across the street from them. Don rushed to the Hill House, arriving before law enforcement and EMS teams got to the scene. He tentatively entered the home to see John dead on the floor, with Robert standing over him, crying out, They've killed my daddy. Don picked up Robert and took him outside so that they could meet with the rescue teams as they were coming in. Minutes later, the EMS team arrived and rushed to check on John, but there was nothing they could do. John Hill was indeed already dead. When his body was turned over, they discovered that not only had John been shot multiple times, but his killer had also taped his eyes, nose, and mouth closed before fleeing the scene of the crime. That's a weird detail. Yeah, really was. Like, they, in case he survived, they wanted him to suffocate? Yes, that's what it appeared to be. It's almost like a hit job, you know? Like, they came with a yeah. mission, they knew what they needed to do, and John was not going to survive. Yeah. And that's actually what some people thought initially. This does appear to be some sort of 
assassination or a hit or, you know, a mafia tie, something like that, because of the way it was done, that not only he was shot to death, but that that tape around his head to make him suffocate. Yeah, the extra measures and all that. Exactly. Nothing was missing from the house except for John's briefcase, the one he was carrying with him on his flight back from Las Vegas, along with his wallet and billfold. Myra was discovered still bound and gagged on the dining room floor. She was taken to the hospital for her injuries. The kick to her throat had been vicious, and she was unable to speak for several days, but she was able to make a full recovery. Mm. Robert was likewise treated. He was physically unharmed, but that says nothing of the mental toll of what he and Myra went through. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Remember, Robert was just 12 years old, and now his mother and father were dead, and he was essentially an eyewitness to his father's murder. Yeah, it's it's like a Batman scenario it's, where yeah. Batman had to watch his parents be murdered in front of him, you know? Like, it's uh, there's no way to quantify the torment that that child had to endure, especially he's the one who got to 911 first. Exactly. I mean, yes, it's just an awful situation. John's body was taken to be autopsied at the Harris County Morgue. Dr. Yehimchek, the county coroner involved in Jones' death investigation three years earlier, also performed John's autopsy as well. Wait, was this the guy that had the random brain in the trunk, or was that a different guy? That was Dr. Morse, the hospital pathologist okay, for Sharkstown. Okay, right. This is the county coroner. Okay, I feel yeah. better about this then. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't want trunk brain doctor working <laughs> on this case any further. He found that John had been shot three times, once in the right wrist, once in the upper left shoulder, and once in the stomach. The bullet to his stomach had torn through his aorta, leading to massive blood loss that would have left John dead within minutes of the injury. Dr. Yehimchek guessed that the tape had been placed around his face to ensure that John would die, but he found that John had died from blood loss from the bullet wound as opposed to suffocation from the tape. Mm. So I guess it it was probably a bit of a better death, I I, I suppose, than suffocating from... From tape around your mouth? Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. He was probably terrified, and it's hard to quantify, like, which is better. Uh, But I think it is something to say, at least, that he he did die pretty quickly, within a few minutes. Yeah, he didn't have to live, or he he didn't didn't have to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he he suffered a little bit, but not terrible. Yeah, he didn't have to suffer for a long amount of time. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. But still, it was a grisly death where John had sustained injuries from a beating as well, including a broken nose. So this was just a very nasty murder in Mm -hmm. general. Houston detectives descended upon the scene and were able to collect evidence that the killer had left behind. There was the roll of tape, a spent shell casing from a thirty-eight caliber bullet, and an entire finger from one of the work gloves the man had been wearing during the whole ordeal. Mm. The glove had gotten caught up in the tape on one of the victim's faces and had torn right off. So there was actually just like a finger dangling from one of their face tapes when they were found. Yeah, and I think they could have done fingerprints back then at this point. And there was a lot of tape that was being used. So if a glove's off, then maybe there's some yeah. fingerprints on some tape somewhere, maybe? Well, that's what they were hoping, but unfortunately they found no fingerprints uh, anywhere throughout the house or on any of these pieces of evidence that they mm, found. Okay. They also had the green cloth that the man had been wearing over his head. It was found close to John's body, as if it had been ripped off in the struggle. It turns out that 
the cloth was actually a pillowcase with holes that had been cut out for eyes. Simple, yet very creepy. Extremely, yeah. And unfortunately, no one in all of River Oaks had heard or seen anything suspicious the evening that John Hill died. Naturally, suspicion was cast immediately upon one man, Ash Robinson. Had Ash ordered a hit on his ex-son-in-law? Now, to try to dispel rumors, Ash made a public statement to a journalist that he was not involved in John's death. And many believed him since Robert had been involved in this situation. Ash obviously loved the boy, and Robert had been put through terrible physical danger as well as tremendous trauma as a result of what happened. It didn't make sense to people that Ash would have allowed that to happen to his grandchild. Sure. But on the other hand, if you're the authorities, he does have the motive to hire a hit. He has the money and the funds and the power and the connections to probably get in contact with somebody who could arrange such mm-hmm. a thing. The, yeah, so the, you're going to probably be extremely suspicious of Ash Robinson. Yeah. But do you have anything to actually go on? I mean, no, but who else are you going to look at in this particular point in the case? Uh, it seems pretty cut and dry and clear that Ash Robinson is the major suspect in the case. Yeah, agreed. And that's in the back of everybody's minds right now. About a week after the murder, there was a break in the case. Some neighborhood kids discovered John's briefcase about a block away from the Hill House. Detectives poked around the area, and sticking out of the mud a few feet away, they found a 38 caliber revolver. Wow, this is a huge find. Yes, absolutely. By comparing the shell casing found at the scene of the crime, ballistics testing confirmed that this was the gun that had been used to kill John Hill. This also seems really sloppy, though, like with the murder weapon and the briefcase just being discarded a little bit away. Absolutely, it was. It appeared as if perhaps the killer had just thrown the stuff away as they were running away Uh. from the scene of the crime. Detectives tracked the serial number and discovered that the gun had been purchased in 1969 in Longview, Texas, by a doctor named William Mitchell. By another doctor? Another doctor. Now, Thompson in his book refers to William Mitchell as Dr. Oren Staves, and perhaps he did this to offer anonymity to Dr. Mitchell, for as we're going to see, his story was a little embarrassing. You see, Dr. Mitchell was a very rich doctor who enjoyed spending his time and money on ladies of the evening. Okay. He explained to detectives that about six months earlier, he had been spending an evening with two such ladies when they stole his car and $3,000 of cash from him and left town. He said that he grabbed his 38 revolver with the intention of chasing after them, but he got distracted when another sex worker friend named Dusty dropped by. What? But then Dusty ended up stealing the revolver from him too. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot to keep track of in that, yes. that line of events of how you lost your revolver. Okay. Now, he said he hadn't seen Dusty nor the gun since this happened. Dr. Mitchell said that Dusty was the young woman's working name, but that he thought her real name was Marsha McKittrick. He said that she was a traveling sex worker, so detectives knew that she would be someone who would be constantly moving from city to city, spot to spot, and would be very hard to track down. Detectives learned from people on the street that Marsha had a boyfriend named Bobby, but no one was sure of his last name. 
A bulletin went out nationwide that Houston PD wanted to speak to Marsha McKittrick and her associate Bobby regarding a murder. But for months, the two were unable to be located and the investigation dragged to a snail's pace. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Throughout this initial investigation, though, one name kept popping up unexpectedly. Lilla Paulus. From the outside, 54-year-old Lilla Paulus was an ordinary housewife who lived in a nice house in a nice area of Houston. Her husband of 25 years, Claude Paulus, just passed away in 1971 from a heart attack, and she was still grieving him. But the rumor was that Lilla and her late husband had actually been a part of a criminal enterprise, that Claude owned a club that was a front for an illegal gambling operation that he was a bookie for Houston's wealthiest citizens, and that he allegedly owned a few brothels down in Galveston. Lilla herself had been a sex worker, with arrests for prostitution and vagrancy in the 40s before she met and married Claude. In her later years, and even after Claude's death, Lilla was said to play hostess to a lot of Houston's underworld, while still pretending to be a normal upper-middle-class lady. Word on the street was that Lilla was very good friends with Marsha McKittrick. Claude and Lilla had a daughter named Mary Josephine, who as a little girl had ridden horses competitively. Although Mary Jo would have been much younger than Joan Robinson, it made sense that they could have known each other. Perhaps Lilla Paulus was the connection between the murder of John Hill and Ash Robinson himself. Wow, that is a lot of people and a lot of details. Really quickly. You're right, but you only have to keep track of three names right now. Three people related to this initial part of the investigation when they are first looking into the murder of John Hill. It's Marsha McKittrick. She is in her early 20s. She's a sex worker. And we know that she stole the gun that was used to murder John Hill. Then there is her boyfriend, Bobby. Right now, there's just maybe the suggestion that he had something to do with the murder but nobody knows for sure. They're just looking to talk to him in regards to John Hill's murder. A potential suspect. Yes. And then finally, we have Lila Paulus. She is in her early 50s, so there is an age gap between her and Marsha and Bobby, who is in his early 30s. So she's a bit of a mother figure. And word on the street is that Lila and Marsha are friends. So people are Uh. like, does Lila have something to do with this murder? And... There's also this weird thing of Lilla seems to be in a position of society to have a connection with Ash Robinson through her daughter, who is also riding horses. Okay. Does all that kind of make a little bit more sense? Definitely. I think that clears everything up a lot more. Okay, cool. Suddenly in 1973, 
One of the Houston detectives working John's case received a call from the Dallas office of the Department of Public Safety. They'd received a tip from an informant that a man named Bobby Vandiver, wanted in connection for murder in Houston, was hiding out in a cabin near Lake Dallas. Oh, okay. So this is a Bobby of, like, at least in a name or an alias that's out there. Yes. Yeah, so might now be the we, same Bobby. Exactly. So now we got the full name of the suspect, Bobby Vandiver. A team of officers descended upon the cabin, and Bobby was arrested without incident. Bobby was already in a lot of trouble. At the age of 32 upon his arrest, Bobby had been a lifelong criminal. In fact, he was basically a professional burglar. That's often how he made his money, along with some pimping and various other legal jobs as well. But that also might mean that he might be the gunman, since like, you know, burglary, invading a home, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, involved in that kind of criminal activity. He had an outstanding warrant for not appearing in court to face a charge of possessing burglary tools. That charge would be his fourth felony, and if convicted, he would be facing a possible life sentence. And that's with the murder of John Hill notwithstanding. Okay, so he's already just for looking everything at, else. Yes, he's already staring down a life sentence. Wow, so Bobby has a lot going on, it sounds like. Absolutely, yeah. Bobby declined an attorney and agreed to speak to investigators, but he told them little. They asked him directly if he killed Dr. John Hill in September of 1972, but Bobby denied it, saying that he was in Dallas at the time. He also denied knowing anyone by the name of Marsha McKittrick. So the detectives laid out what they knew. They told Bobby that they believed that Marsha McKittrick stole a gun from a doctor in Longview, gave it to him, and that he used that gun to kill Dr. John Hill. But then the detectives took a gamble that they later explained was based on total speculation. They told Bobby they were aware that the murder happened because of Lilla Paulus. Wow, that was a gamble? Total gamble. Just a guess? That's what they said, yeah. Hmm. Bobby's shocked reaction confirmed for detectives that Lilla Paulus indeed was involved. And Bobby decided to talk as soon as Lilla Paulus's name was mentioned. He asked to speak to the DA's office about what he knew, and they worked out a deal. If Bobby made a full confession about the murder and testified in court against his co-conspirators, Marsha McKittrick and Lilla Paulus, then the DA would recommend the judge give him a 12-year sentence, where he could expect to be out between two and five years for good behavior. Well, that's a bargain. Yeah, and that probably sounded a lot better than life. Uh, Right? So Bobby, in honor of being the first person caught, became the first one to make himself a pretty sweet deal. In return, over the next nine days, Bobby told them everything he knew about John's murder. Bobby said that he'd met Marsha McKittrick in 1971 and that they had a sort of on-and-off-again relationship. He said Marsha moved around a lot, but when she came to Houston, she frequently stayed with a woman named Lilla Paulus. He said that one day in the summer of 1972, Marsha came to him and told him Lilla wanted to know if Bobby was interested in taking a $5,000 contract for a murder. At first, Bobby said that he said no to the job, that he'd never considered murder before. But Bobby explained that his girlfriend Vicky had just gotten pregnant, and the pregnancy was difficult, and both Vicky and the baby were in danger of dying. Bobby said that he needed the money for medical bills, and in his desperation, he decided to take up the contract. 
Bobby said that's when Lilla gave him the details for the job. He said Lilla told him that the target was a plastic surgeon named Dr. John Hill, who had killed his wife by poisoning her with bacteria he'd grown in his bathroom. Well, that sounds very similar to things that we've heard already. Mm-hmm. Hmm. She said that Dr. Hill's son was to be unharmed, but that it didn't matter what happened to anyone else who got in the way. He said Lilla told him that the dead wife's father was the one who wanted the hit, but that Lilla had carefully only referred to him as my man or the old man, so he didn't know his name. That is a direct connection to Ash. Mm-hmm. So in this scenario, this story, Lilla in the criminal underground is this this older matriarch in the criminal game on the streets doing hits for people she somehow has connections to ash and that this is verification that he called the hit yes wow there is a lot more okay bobby said lilla gave him one thousand dollars in cash up front money she said that the old man gave her she said that the rest would come after the job was done She told him that she was being paid by the old man separately for setting up the contract, but she didn't mention how much money she would be making in the deal. Lilla gave Bobby a picture of John Hill that she said the old man had provided for him. Bobby said Lilla laughed at how the old man had cut the photo into the shape of a coffin. That does seem like something the old man, Ash, would do, Mm -hmm. cutting his picture into a coffin. I mean, we already know he hates him. Oh, yes. And, and to Lilla, apparently, at least this is what Bobby said, he said that she thought it was kind of funny. And she commented upon the fact that, oh, that old MFR really wants John Hill dead. Just the level of levity that people have that are hiring hitmen For to murder, do this yeah. stuff. It's incredible. <laughs> it's weird. Bobby said together he, Marsha, and Lilla drove out to Kirby Drive on at least three different occasions where Lilla pointed out the hill house to them, and they drove around River Oaks to get familiar with the neighborhood and plan an escape route. Lilla also provided a drawing of the layout of the house, as well as newspaper clippings that covered Joan's death and the mistrial. She even took them to the Herman Professional Building where John's office was, so they could case the place. Bobby said that he began to get a little skeptical about the hit around this time. John was either at work in a busy hospital or office or at home in a house full of family and staff. Yeah, so it's just like hard to plan out the logistics. Incredibly, yeah. He also lived in the rich, well-kept, crime-free landscape of River Oaks, Houston. Yeah, and like you said, nobody in that gated community saw anything. Yes, which is shocking in of itself, honestly. There were a lot of obstacles for a clean hit here, especially for only $5,000. In fact, Bobby said Lilla mentioned to him that the contract had actually been available for years. And hitmen much more experienced than he had been interested, but ultimately turned the contract down because of how messy it all was. For years? For years. At least till maybe 1968 when uh, Joan died, I guess. Well, or at least until you find someone who has enough desperate times that it calls for desperate measures to get it done. Which, what that's what it seems like with Bobby. Like, he was desperate and needed the money, and went for the gamble, tried to pull it off. Yeah. This all seems to track, though, so far. So far, yeah. Bobby said that near the beginning of September, Marsha called Dr. Hill's office to check on his schedule, and that's how they learned about the plastic surgery conference happening in Las Vegas. Oh. 
They called the Stardust Hotel and learned that Dr. John Hill did indeed have a room booked for that conference. Bobby said they decided to kill John while he was in Las Vegas, where it could look like a completely random robbery. He and Marsha drove up to Las Vegas and laid in waiting for him for two weeks. But as we know, John never showed up because they went to that little trip to San Francisco. Yeah, They were playing hooky, right? Yeah, basically. So they actually got to the convention about the same time that Bobby and Marsha left in frustration, thinking that John had skipped the convention. Well, it's so weird how he escaped a murder plot, not knowing that a murder plot existed, just to come home to eventually get murdered. Like, that is wild. Yeah. I mean, this was a very serious plan. He was going to be murdered no matter what. Well, frustrated, they returned to Lilla's house in Houston to regroup only to discover that they had just missed John and Connie in Las Vegas. Lilla said that the old man's contacts had informed him that John and Connie had gone to Seattle to retrieve $15,000 in cash that John would be bringing home to pay his attorneys for his upcoming murder trial that was scheduled for November. Let me guess, this is what's going to be in the briefcase, maybe? Well, that's what Bobby says he was told. Bobby says Lilla specifically said the old man had all these contacts that were watching John and that they knew for sure John had between fifteen and possibly even $25,000 in cash on him coming home from Las Vegas. So that gives him more impetus to go forward with this. It absolutely did because the old man told Lilla, who then told Bobby, that if John was killed as he returned home, Bobby would be able to get away with all of that cash as a bonus. Ah, okay, the incentive. I see it. Lilla said the old man said John and Connie were expected to return the very next night on Sunday, but that he didn't know what flight they were on, so they had to rush to put everything together. Lilla got the phone number to the Hill House from the old man, and Bobby made the phone calls to the Hill House on Saturday and Sunday to get updates on John's arrival. Those weird calls that we heard about. Yes, where he spoke to Myra. Marsha called two different airlines that flew between Las Vegas and Houston to get arrival time so they could calculate exactly when he'd be home. Bobby said that in robberies, he always wore a ski mask and gloves. This was like his uniform. However, it being late summer in Texas, ski masks were pretty hard to come by. So Lilla had dug through her linen closet and given him the green pillowcase to wear over his head. Okay, well, it's it probably breathed a little bit better. It's Than not, a ski mask? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It is also interesting that the flight information on when their comings and goings were going to be, because like as of today, all that stuff's available online, you know, and like that, that seems like you have to do a lot more legwork back in the day to find out when people's flights were, were going to arrive. Yeah, I guess so. More legwork for murder yeah, and more. more chances to be caught as we're actually going to see. Yeah. Well, we need a shirt that's just more legwork for murder. <laughs> <laughs> At about seven on Sunday night, Bobby said Marsha dropped him off at the Hill House. The plan was that after the job was done, Bobby would walk on foot to the House of Pies, which is a restaurant right down the street on Kirby Drive, where Marsha would be waiting as the getaway driver. So do they serve pie? I think so. (laughs) Actually, House of Pies sounds really delicious. I I want meat pies. Like regular pies. Like it's just pies. Like everything on the menu is just pie form. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, pie, dessert pie. (laughs) 
It's weird that we you went to the House of Pie. I looked it up. It's still in, in existence. The Re- exact same really? location. Yes. Okay. It's a few miles what? from the Hill House. One of our listeners needs to go and eat at House of Pies and like send us photos from eating there. I want to see the menu. Absolutely. I want to know everything about House of Pies and I want to eat there one day in my life. Yeah. So Marsha would be waiting in the parking lot of House of Pies and Bobby had the number to the pay phone in the parking lot so he could call and get a hold of her. Bobby described entering the house, tying up Robert and Myra, and waiting for John and Connie to arrive. He described answering the door and grabbing for Connie before she broke away and ran. He said John came after him, pulled the pillowcase off his head, and went for the gun. Bobby hit John in the face and fired the gun at him, hitting him in the wrist first. Bobby said that he aimed the gun at John again and told him, hold it. But John came for him once again. Bobby shot him a second time, which hit him in the shoulder, but he said John still wouldn't stay down. They wrestled for the gun and it went off again. Bobby guessed that the bullet hit the ceiling. Bobby said that he punched John, who fell back, and he shot him again, this time squarely in the stomach. He said that John fell down and this time he did not get back up. Bobby went through his pockets and grabbed his wallet and billfold. He put the tape around John's nose, eyes, and mouth, and then grabbed John's briefcase and ran out the door. He'd expected to be able to calmly walk away from the house, but with Connie having run off, he knew the area would be soon crawling with police, and he needed to get rid of the gun and briefcase. Oh, okay. So this is the this is the reason why he dumped everything. Absolutely. But before... He stopped to open the briefcase and count his new fortune. Of course, again, he's expecting between fifteen and $25,000 in cash to be in this briefcase. He was alarmed to find nothing inside of John's briefcase besides some paperwork. Altogether, John had only been carrying about $800 at the time of his death, and that's what Bobby received. Well, that's probably another reason why you shouldn't be... A horrible hitman. Yeah, criminal. shouldn't murder people, probably. Do stupid things, you get stupid results. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby said that he threw the briefcase and the gun away in some bushes and kept moving, only to realize that he was lost. He found a payphone and called Marsha, who came and picked him up. Bobby finished his story by insisting that he hadn't intended on actually killing John at all. He said that he'd just gone to the house to steal the briefcase of money. He said that he'd only ended up killing John because John wouldn't stop coming after him. Of course, this is all something that could be doubtful whether or not Bobby intended to murder John that night. Sure. That's up in the air. But either way, Bobby does admit during this conversation that he did indeed kill John Hill. And also, a lot of these details match up with what we know about the crime scene, the case so far. You know, it seems to line up. So Bobby is definitely the guy. Yes, these are very, very specific details about this murder. Bobby absolutely was the man to have killed John Hill. Wow, what a confession. Absolutely. And he also added that months after the murder, Vicky ended up miscarrying the baby. So the whole reason that Bobby said he was doing this in the first place kind of just blew up in his face. Bobby said that they drove back to Lilla's house and told her that John Hill was dead. Lilla handed him the remaining $4,000. And this is probably one of the most shocking things to me about this case. 
Bobby gave Lilla $1,500 of it back, saying that he wanted her to have it to cover some of their expenses and as sort of a finder's fee for getting him the job. Uh, What? (laughs) This is so wild to me because Bobby knew that Lilla was already being paid for her job, for for being the middleman between whoever was hiring for the job and Bobby. Lilla was being paid for that separately. So he's basically giving her a tip. Yes. Like, thanks for hiring me. A $1,500 tip out of his $5,000 for being the one to actually pull the trigger and do the murder. Bobby's not a smart guy, is he? (laughs) So I don't know if this was a thing where Bobby was trying to be chivalrous and take care of Lilla or whatever, but we're going to talk later about the figure Lilla was speculated to have been paid for her role in all of this. And let's just say she didn't need that $1,500. I want to know about those details. I'm, I'm excited to understand the inner workings of that relationship. Yeah. But the thing is, Bobby did need that money. They needed as much money as possible to go on the run. Remember, the gun and the briefcase were found a week later, and that freaks them out. So they realize that they need to get out of town. Bobby used the money to buy a car. He drove himself and Marcia to California, and he set themselves up in an apartment in Los Angeles. But they kept hearing news back, but they kept hearing news from back home of law enforcement, even the Texas Rangers out looking for them. The pressure, fear, and stress was so great that Marcia, who'd struggled with drug addiction before, began using heroin. Her addiction grew so powerful so quickly that it wasn't long before she was shooting up hundreds of dollars a day. So basically, this is where all of that money goes is to just taking care of them while they're on the run. So at the end of the day, they're left with nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. After a while, Marsha grew tired of hunkering down in the apartment and she left, flying to Las Vegas and getting back into her old line of work there, immediately back with her high-end clients making good money. Over the next months, Marcia and Bobby had continued like this, meeting up in Dallas or L.A. before separating once again and going about their separate lives. Bobby's friend had offered him the cabin to stay in, and he'd been there the last few weeks until, of course, his arrest. Well, this all seems to fall together. Yeah, absolutely. And Bobby's testimony could help put away both Marcia and Lilla for their roles in John's death. But he knew very little about their mysterious benefactor, the man Lilla seemed to know so well, who'd wanted Dr. Hill dead so badly. The old man. That's right. Bobby did say that it was possible that Marcia knew a lot more than he did, but Bobby had no idea where she was. He said that with Marcia's line of work and her contacts and her wealthy clientele, she could be anywhere. And so, with Bobby's statements and the evidence available, On April 25th, 1973, Bobby Vandiver and Marsha McKittrick were indicted for the murder of John Hill, while Lilla Paulus was indicted for being an accomplice to murder. Lilla was arrested at her new fiancé's house and consented to a search of her home. Detectives were hoping that they could find a pillowcase that matched the one Bobby said that she had given him to wear, but there they had no such luck. However, there were several slips of paper found near a telephone in the den that piqued investigators' interests. The first slip of paper was a detailed schedule of the arrival times of flights coming from Las Vegas and landing in Houston. 
at the bottom of that slip of paper was written the name Dusty and the name and phone number of the William Penn Hotel, a hotel that Marsha frequently stayed at when she was meeting clients in Houston. On a nightstand in the back bedroom of the house, a blank check was found for a joint account owned by Lilla and Claude Paulus. On the back of the check was a handwritten note that read, You had better tell Ash that they are trying to subpoena Ma. Ma, by the way, was how Ash and many others referred to his wife, Ray. Well, I mean, that seems very specific. As far as the details, the names, we have some aliases that people are going by. Like, I mean, we have Ash, so we have a written connection to Ash Robinson, it seems like. And finally, there was a sealed letter found in Lilla's house that had been written and signed by Marsha McKittrick. It looked like she'd written the letter while staying with Lilla, but never sent it out. So we have all of these connections to both Ash Robinson and Marsha McKittrick found at Lilla's house. Now, there was one more slip of paper found, but it was found in Lilla's purse. It was a phone number. That number was traced, and it turned out to be a private, unlisted phone number installed at Ash Robinson's house temporarily right around the time of John's death. That seems like the nail in the coffin, right? Mm, Yeah, it seems pretty significant. And a search of her phone records found phone calls from Lilla's house to the Stardust Hotel and to airlines in the days before John's death that seemed to corroborate Bobby's statements of how they planned the murder altogether. So there were lots of little bits of evidence that supported Bobby's statements about Lilla being the middleman in the murder contract. But Lilla herself refused to talk. And she denied any knowledge of her co-conspirators, Ash Robinson, or the late Dr. Hill. I mean, she might be the smartest one in this criminal operation. You're probably right about that. It depends on your definition of smart, though, I guess you would have to say. I mean, I don't feel like Lil Paulus was that smart for doing all this. But she seems like a grizzled criminal veteran that has experience and is wearing this mask to blend into highfalutin society but also has ties to the underground. A very captivating idea and uh, concept for a criminal mastermind. Yeah, I would say that's a great description of Lillipolis, yes. Marsha McKittrick, meanwhile, was actually in Dallas when the news about the indictments came down, and she saw her and Bobby's mugshots on the front pages of all the local papers. She realized that Bobby must have been arrested and that he must have talked. And she felt the danger closing in for her. So, for the first time, she contacted her lawyer. And together, they flew to Houston, and Marsha turned herself into authorities. However, her lawyer immediately paid her bond, and before anyone had a chance to speak with her, Marsha disappeared once again. This was actually very smart of her. Yeah, that is smart. So she's just gone in the wind again. Yep. And she's refusing to to speak to the DA's office, to any law enforcement, anybody at all. She's street smart, right? Yeah. She knows not to talk to the cops. Yeah, exactly. Get away when you can. Yeah, that is smart. Meanwhile, Bobby had done well for himself. He was now charged with first degree murder, sure, but he was also the state's star witness in a hot murder trial. And he's got that plea bargain, right? He does have that plea bargain, but it gets even better for Bobby, if you can believe that. Okay. Bobby was able to get himself some pretty sweet perks for someone in his position. His longtime girlfriend, Vicky, was flown in, and the two were set up in a motel nearby, all of which was paid for by the DA's office. 
They even arranged for a job waiting tables for Vicky and gave Bobby a couple hundred dollars just for spending money. But after several weeks, Bobby grew bored and begged the assistant DA to allow him to return with Vicky to Dallas. He said it would just look like he was out on bond before the murder trial. No one would know he was actually cooperating with the DA's office. Bobby said that he'd come right back and turn himself in, testify, and begin serving his sentence whenever they needed him to. Bobby. And the DA's office allowed it. So they're like, yeah, you can just go on to Dallas and do your thing. And whenever we need you to come back and testify, we're going to call you. Bobby, you got a good thing going, Bobby. But then, in September of 1973, Marsha McKittrick was arrested in Dallas trying to cash a forged check. And Houston detectives went to go speak to her. Marsha had spent the past year since John's murder spiraling further and further into a heroin addiction. And upon her arrest, she was in absolute agony and suffering from very serious withdrawal symptoms. However, detectives said that Marsha agreed to speak with them freely, and she ended up confessing to everything. Okay, so we have a second confession now. We sure do. And this one blows Bobby's even out of the water. Okay. Marsha said that she first met Lilla at the beginning of 1972, and that she and Lilla had become friends very quickly. She confirmed that she stayed at Lilla's house frequently whenever she came to town. She said that Lilla was fully aware that she was a sex worker and only requested that Marsha not bring her clients to her house. She said that she'd heard rumors about the murder contract for a while, but Lilla didn't approach her about it until that summer, the summer of 1972, when she asked if Bobby would be interested in that kind of work. So this information, this murder contract, was just floating around to where she had heard about it loosely? Well, she heard about it because she had been staying with Lilla oh, off and on okay. through for, through those f- first few months. So she kind of heard it in passing at Lilla's house. But again, Lilla didn't approach her about it until that summer. That makes sense. It's It's just a weird concept to have if you're not a part of that world. Personally, I've never heard of just a vague... Murder contract talk, like in you know, like it's yeah. just so normalized and <laughs> so strange. Yeah, between TV shows and conversations with friends, that I, I heard about it. It was around. Yeah, just you know, very calm, relaxed conversation about murder. I don't get it. It's not a world we live in. Marsha confessed to stealing the gun so Bobby could use it in the crime, and she said that she called around to hotels and airports from Lilla's house while planning the murder and that she was the getaway driver. She confessed to basically everything. Her statements strengthened Bobby's and enhanced the case against Lilla Paulus, but it also gave other supporting details that Bobby hadn't known. Most importantly, Marsha confirmed that yes, the enigmatic old man that Lilla had always referred to was, in fact, Ash Robinson. Marsha said she knew this because she met him several times. Things aren't looking good for Ash Robinson Mm -hmm. at all. You've got multiple sources now really cementing your name in this case with good details that are further concreting this idea of how this murder plot went down. And and, uh, it just doesn't seem good for him. It seems like it's end of times. Well, it doesn't because believe me, Marsha has a lot of very specific things to say about him. Marsha said that the first time she met Ash was in the summer of 1972 when Ash had come to Lilla's house and Lilla had introduced him as an old friend. Ash explained that he and Lilla met through their daughters, who had ridden horses together. She said Ash came back over the summer 
another three to four times while Marsha was there, and Marsha heard him speak about other details of his life. She said he mentioned that he wanted to get custody of his grandson, but that it wouldn't happen unless John Hill was convicted of murder or was dead. She said Ash said that the mistrial had been painful because he was positive John had murdered his daughter and that he wanted justice. In time, she said Lilla dropped all pretense and flat out told her that Ash Robinson was the one who wanted Dr. Hill dead. She said that Lilla told her that she too had cared deeply for Joan. She said that Joan had been kind to Mary Jo and had helped her in horse riding competitions. She painted John to be a horrible villain who deserved a harsh death. So, I mean, I think that this is something that's kind of important as well, as at least according to Marsha and Bobby, Lilla also had a relationship with Joan yeah. and was also upset for the way Joan died and also took that out on John. Yeah, there's another weight there from someone else who has a connection to the underground who can get a hitman. There, There's multiple strings that draw yeah. it back to the death of Joan. Yeah, so Lilla seems like she was emotionally invested in what was going to happen and how the inner workings of it were going to go forward. Like, it was going to happen. John was going to die. Yes, and that's definitely something that we get from Marsha and Bobby, that Lilla had this emotional connection with Joan as well, and she was upset because of Joan's death and wanted John Hill to die kind of because of that. She said that there were other meetings between Lilla and Ash, too. Two or three times, Marcia said that they drove to a parking lot of a nearby hospital to meet Ash. Marcia said she always stayed in the car, and Lilla would go speak to Ash in his vehicle, or the two would go walk around a little park together alone. Marcia said she never heard what was spoken between Lilla and Ash at these meetings, but that twice she witnessed Ash handing Lilla envelopes of money. She didn't know how much money it was, however. The morning of John's death, she said Ash dropped by Lilla's house and told Lilla that his contacts had found out that John would be carrying $15,000 of cash on him when he returned home from his trip. She said that later the night that John was killed, Ash came to Lilla's house and handed her $7,000 in cash, saying, quote, that about covers it. She said that she guessed that ultimately Lilla was paid around $25,000 by Ash for her role in the murder of Dr. John Hill. Well, thanks for the tip, Bobby. Right? So that would mean that Lilla got about $21,500, if we include that tip from Bobby from the job, where Bobby only got $3,500. And as far as Marsha goes, she got nothing. Nothing? I mean, she wasn't paid by Lilla to be a part of the job. All of that money went straight to Bobby. So, I mean, Marsha got part of it because Bobby was paying for the room and board essentially with the money for a while. But really, she didn't really get anything out of this murder, which is amazing why she participated in it then. Yeah, I don't get her motivation in, in any of this because if there was nothing set in stone where she was set to profit, I mean, it seems like she had her own thing going on. And what what was her benefit? Was she just a pawn to be moved around and was just manipulated by these other people in her life? That's what it seems like. Yeah, kind of. And I think she also thought she was doing her, a solid to both Lilla and Bobby. Yeah. And like she was helping them both out. And I think that's kind of how she got involved. Yeah. And I'm sure you can pitch it as John as this grievance that both 
Lilla and Ash have. You yes. Know. Yeah. And th- I think that's important to point out, too, is that Ash and Lilla painted John as a villain. Yeah. So to Marsha and Bobby, I think it was easier to go ahead and do the job because to them, John was this evil monster who killed Joan Hill. Yeah. In their minds, he probably needed to die. Yeah. Well, after her confession, Marsha was taken to the hospital about a week later where she was treated for her heroin withdrawal. About a week later, when she was well again, she claimed that she was violently ill at the time of her confession and that detectives had denied her medical treatment until she gave a statement. She said her confession had been made under duress and was was coerced. And in fact, she claimed to not even remember speaking to detectives or signing anything. Bob Bennett, the assistant district attorney, tried to offer Marsha immunity if she would agree to testify, but Marsha refused. She knew the connections that people like Lilla Paulus and even Ash Robinson had, and she knew that her life and the life of her son would be in danger if she testified. Yeah, these are big people with big money, big power. What could they do to you? Exactly. So Marsha's like, "Mm -mm, I I ain't talking. In April of 1974, Bobby was notified that it was time to return to Houston to testify against Marsha and Lilla, receive his sentence, and head straight to prison for at least the next two years of his life. But Bobby never showed up. The DA's office revoked his bond and bulletins were sent out everywhere that Bobby Vandiver was on the run. I told you not to do it, Bobby. I know. Then you did it. It turns out that Bobby and Vicky had taken off and settled in Longview in East Texas. That's actually the Back same place. Back where the gun came from. That's actually, yes, where the, bu- the gun came from. I'm not sure. I think it was just a random coincidence that they went to Longview. Huh. Okay. And over in Longview, Bobby started going by the name J.C. Sheridan. But local police took notice of the new guy who showed up in town and started hanging out at all of the known criminal hotspots. An officer named James Raymer called in the registration info on Bobby's car and eventually figured out that this J.C. Sheridan was really Bobby Vandiver, wanted in Houston for murder. Raymer approached Bobby at a restaurant with his gun drawn. Bobby, seeing the cop with the gun, reached for his own weapon, and Raymer shot him dead. Bobby's just dead? Bobby's dead. And this actually triggered an investigation as to, was Raymer paid by somebody, perhaps Ash Robinson, to kill Bobby Vandiver? To silence him. Yeah, but that that didn't go anywhere. It was legitimately just the situation where this officer realized this was a bad guy. Oh, he's wanted in Houston. I got to take him in. And... Bobby went for his gun. Well, and, and yeah, and let's be clear. He did make a movement yes. that probably drew the officer to shoot him. He went for a gun that did exist. Yes. So, it, and it, there were there were multiple witnesses who identified the fact that Bobby did go for his weapon and that's why he was killed. Man, Bobby, you made a lot of mistakes, bud. I know. We needed you in the trial. They really did. And now the ADA Bob Bennett is going, "What am I going to do now?" He's wondering if the case should just be dropped. Now the state's star witness is dead. Lilla Paulus was just diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. And Ash was nearing 80 years old. It seems like at this point in the case, it's getting desperate. Like things mm-hmm. things are aging. The case is kind of like falling apart. Like where do we go now? Absolutely. And a judge ruled that Bobby's statements, his full confession, 
was inadmissible against Marsha or Lilla because it would violate their Sixth Amendment rights to confront their accuser. Bobby was dead, so he can't be there to actually testify and and be present for them to confront him. Oh, no, don't, don't tell me. <laughs> don't tell me that this is where we're headed, like that there's not going to be a conclusion to this case that we're going to enjoy. Is that where, is, that seems like where we're going. Well, here's another problem. Lilla's old charges for prostitution and vagrancy, which were the pretty much the only facts people could point to to suggest that Lilla had these connections to the underground criminal element in Houston. Sure. All of that was also ruled inadmissible. So the state would have to convince a jury that this totally average seeming lady who was now <sighs> sick with breast cancer was heavily involved in criminal activity and that she had arranged a murder. That's a hard sell for a jury. It is. But not to say it's not true, which it's, it seems like it's absolutely true. Yes. And another problem is Marsha still continued to refuse to testify against Lilla. And who would blame her? Without Bobby, Marsha would be alone in pointing her finger at Lilla Paulus, a known figurehead of Houston's criminal underworld, and Ash Robinson, who was so wealthy and powerful and above reproach that he still hadn't even been officially questioned about John's murder, let alone indicted. That's a crazy thing. Like, mm -hmm. how has he not been questioned at this point? With all that information, these ties, details, yep. but, you know. That's what you money have, will do for you. Yeah. It'll yep. help you avoid the spotlight. It sure will. But then Marsha's attorney made a really weird move. He got Marsha to agree to have the judge go ahead and sentence her without having to go through the business of a trial. He told her he was positive that he would get her confession thrown out on appeal and that she'd either get a new trial or the charges would eventually be dropped. So <laughs> Marsha's attorney is fully allowing his client to become a convicted murderer because he didn't want to bother with a trial, giving her the hope that maybe one day in the future, things will go differently. That seems like a sham of logic. Mm-hmm. And just like that, Marsha was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And still, she refused to testify against Lilipolis. So ADA Bennett submitted a new motion that compelled Marsha to take the stand at Lilith's trial or be found in contempt of court. So now, Marsha did not have a choice in risking her life to testify. And she didn't even get a deal out of it. Okay. She's already been sentenced to yeah. 10 years in prison. She didn't get a deal and she has to testify. She has nothing to gain or lose at this point. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lilla's trial began in February of 1975, with the state's objective to prove that Lilla planned, aided, and profited from the murder of Dr. John Hill. In the first few days, Dr. Mitchell, our doctor from Longview, testified that Marsha stole the revolver used in the murder from him. Both Robert and Connie also took the stand to describe what happened the day of John's death. And finally, Marsha, compelled to testify by the court, told her full story to the world, 
She talked about first meeting Lilla in January of 1972. She said that Lilla asked her about the murder contract that summer. She said that she knew Ash Robinson and knew he was the one offering the contract on John Hill. She spoke about seeing Ash several times at Lilla's house and about the secret meetings between Lilla and Ash where she believed she witnessed Ash handing Lilla money. She described all the ways Lilla helped plan John's murder and explained that it had been difficult to figure out when to kill John Hill because he was never alone. She said that the slip of paper with the flight schedules written on it found at Lilla's house was made when they were figuring out John's arrangements back to Houston. And she explained that the phone calls made to the Stardust in Las Vegas and to various airlines seen in the telephone records from Lilla's house were also from planning the murder. Well, Lilla herself took the stand next, and this actually surprised a lot of people. Lilla had not spoken a word other than to say that she was innocent of the charges. Yeah, I want to know what she has to say. Yeah, absolutely. Lilla talked about her life, where she presented herself as a typical housewife whose husband had just passed away. She talked about her daughter, Mary Josephine. Lilla acknowledged that Mary Jo had competed in the same circuits as Joan Robinson Hill, but said that they didn't actually know each other. Lilla said that she knew of Ash Robinson, but that he was not a friend nor an acquaintance. She said she had never met him, he'd never been at her home, and she'd never received money from him. She denied that any of the slips of paper found in her home were hers, or that she'd written any of them. She said that the slip of paper with Ash's phone number on it was not hers, and that someone else must have put it in her purse without her knowledge. Lilla is very smart. Mm-hmm, she, she is. She admitted that she met Marcia through a friend of her late husband's and said that she'd cared for the girl as her own daughter. But she totally denied knowing that Marcia was a sex worker and denied knowing or ever meeting Bobby Vandiver. So Lilla completely denied everything except for being a kind soul who had taken oh, in the yeah. troubled Marsha McKittrick. Sure. I mean, even with terminal cancer, where like she has nothing left to lose at this point. Yeah. But like she's still street smart. Of course. Well, next up was rebuttal testimony. And the state called two surprise witnesses that really shook things up. The first was Joan Jaworski Worrell. She was the daughter of famed Watergate prosecutor Leon Jaworski. So her words already rang with a certain amount of authority just because of who she was. I remember this was just a few years after Watergate. Yeah. So everybody in that room would have known who she was when yeah. she took the stand. She, she would have been easily identified and has a track record. Yes. Yeah. It turns out that Joni had been lifelong best friends with Joan Robinson Hill. The two had met as children ridden horses together, and Joni had even been Joan's maid of honor at her wedding to John. Joni had been crushed by Joan's death, but had never personally believed that John had murdered her friend. Joni testified that she'd seen Lilla and Ash together on three occasions, two times at Chatsworth Farm in 1965 and in 1969, and the third in New Orleans where they had all eaten together at a restaurant. So that this is harsh condemnation for Lilla Paulus in yeah. the eyes of the jury. Like you said, somebody who didn't even think that John had murdered Joan in the first yes. place. Mm-hmm. And now she is like, well, I have seen them in multiple locations uh, that fit into this storyline. The next surprise witness was Mary Josephine, 
Lilla's own daughter. We've talked about her several times so far, but we have not heard from her. The DA's office had spent considerable time tracking her down to see what she knew about her mother's illegal activities. Mary Jo had initially refused to testify, claiming that she was terrified of her mother. But eventually she agreed when she realized that she could help put her mother away for the rest of her life. I mean, that makes sense. Lilla does sound terrifying. Mm-hmm, we'll get this. On the stand, Mary Jo said that she indeed had known and was good friends with Joan Robinson. What? Mm-hmm, yes. H- how? She said that they first met in 1963 or 1964 through the horse trainer, Diane Sedegast. If we remember Diane, she was one of the house guests that last week where Joan died. Yeah, in episode one, she was going to take over Chatsworth Farms and be the new horse trainer and run things and make it all flow better. That's right. And she was actually the first one who came up with this whole poisoned pastry hypothesis. Oh, yeah. That had then taken over the story of this entire situation. Which may or may not still be true. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. She said that Joan herself introduced her and her mother, Lilla, to Ash. Over the years, Mary Jo said that she and her mother visited the Hill House multiple times and that Ash was often there as well. She said her mother and Ash grew close as friends and that they often even sat in Ash's box during Houston's annual Pin Oak Charity Horse Show. She said that on Christmas of 1970, she was at her parents' house and overheard her mother say to her father that Diane Sedegast had called and said that Ash Robinson was interested in putting a hit out on John Hill. Okay, do tell. (laughs) Go on. She said her father had become upset and told her mother not to get involved. So these are some very damning statements made by the defendant's own daughter. And she's even kind of leveling stuff at Diane Sedegas, too. Yeah. And we've heard about the rumors of this hit circling in the underground. Yes. But now we're hearing about this hit circling, you know, levels of communication that are happening between very rich and powerful people of clout. Yes. That's so weird to me. It's crazy. So at first, that's all that Mary Jo has to say. She leaves the stand. The defense then called its own surprise witness. Who do you think it is? Well, I don't know who else it would be besides Diane Sedegast. It was, in fact, Diane Sedegast. She went on to try to dismantle what Jonine Jaworski and Mary Jo said about Lilla. She said that she had never seen Joan Jaworski at Chatsworth Farm except after Joan's death. She said she'd only seen Lilla there once, and that was because she had invited her there for a drink. She said that Ash and Lilla only knew each other in passing and were not friends. She said she'd never seen Lilla at the Hill House or Ash at Lilla's house. She denied calling Lilla and telling her that Ash was looking for a murder contract, as Mary Jo had stated on the stand. She said that she had three separate phone numbers for Ash, and that she might have been the person to have written Ash's number down and slipped it into Lilla's purse, although she had no recollection of doing so. Oh, boy. So Diane's giving Lilla a little bit of a reprieve mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. She then tried to tarnish Mary Jo's testimony by accusing Mary Jo of being a sex worker. She said that Mary Jo was so troubled that her mother had been forced to send her for treatment at a psychiatric hospital. So Diane is taking down Mary Jo. Yeah. 
Yeah, destroying the credibility of, of that testimony. So then, Mary Jo was called back to the stand to address the things that Diane said in her testimony. It's really a he said, she said, <laughs> back and forth drama spectacular, really. It really is. But this is where we get the nitty gritty that Mary is able to testify <gasps> in the st- on the stand. And she's able to say all of these things because Diane opened it up by ac- making all of these c- accusations on the stand. Now Mary is able to tell her full story. Let's hear it, girl. Mary explained that, yes, she had indeed been admitted for three weeks at a psychiatric hospital when she was 17 for, quote, emotional disturbance. She explained that she had wanted to marry an older man named Larry Wood, but her mother had refused and had accused Mary of being on heroin. She said Lilla told her that if she went to the hospital and was tested and could prove that she was not on drugs, she would allow the marriage. But when Mary Jo showed up to the hospital, she found out it was just a ruse. Her mother was having her committed. Prosecutors were able to enter the medical records from the hospital stay that described Mary as having no sign of psychiatric illness and that one doctor noted, quote, mother seems to be the major problem. Another nurse had even noted that Lilla had come to visit Mary Jo with a gun in her purse that she would wave around. And Mary Jo explained that personally, she rarely ever saw her mother without a loaded gun. Finally, Prosecutor Bennett asked Mary if she had ever engaged in sexual activities for money or other favors, as Diane had accused her of on the stand. She said yes, because her mother had forced her into it as a child. Oh, okay, all right, big double Z snap right there. She said that it began when she was about four years old with a man in his 60s. She said that the man gave her mother money afterward. She said the man returned several times a week, every week, until she was about 11 years old. By the time she was 16, Mary said that Lilla was essentially her pimp. She would find her clients and set her fees. She said that she and Lilla traveled down to Galveston quite frequently to collect money from the brothels they owned. She said that she knew that they were brothels because Lilla had made her work out of one for a summer. Jeez, Lilla is a monster. Yes. She said that she was able to escape the psychiatric hospital and had eloped with Larry Wood, the man that she was still married to today. So things are good for Mary Jo. We will say that. Okay, good. I'm glad that she's found her way out of this horrible situation. But she did go on to say that one night their apartment got shot up and she believed Lilla was behind the attack to either kill them or just threaten them. She said her and her husband were terrified and they left Houston for good and had been in hiding from her mother ever since. How scary is that? That your own mother might be behind a potential hit attempt on you? Yeah. Ugh. Terrifying. But the thing is, Mary Jo's statements on the stand did exactly what she needed them to do. And in the end, the jury only took five hours before reaching a verdict of guilty. Lila Paulus was sentenced to 35 years in prison for helping to plan the murder of John Hill. As far as Ash Robinson goes, he was never charged with anything to do with John Hill's death. If Lila did know Ash, She never admitted it, and without her testimony, no one ever bothered to try to indict Ash. 
There was some general poking around for evidence, and his bank records were subpoenaed to see if there were any mysterious large withdrawals that corresponded with these payments Marcia said he was making to Lilla. But no one could find any unusual financial activity. Yeah, but there's there's other ways to get around that with cash transactions and loose liquid assets that he could, you know, make available to have something like this be done. Yeah, for sure. With no hope of criminal charges, in 1976, Connie, as Robert's guardian, and Myra Hill, John's mother, filed a civil suit against Ash for $7.6 million, alleging that Ash arranged John's death. Lilla declined to testify against Ash, but Marcia did, stating once more under oath that Ash Robinson put the contract out on John. She even took and passed a polygraph test. But Ash also took and passed a polygraph test regarding John's death, one that he paid for himself at a lie detector firm instead of allowing himself to be questioned by DA or law enforcement, of course. Oh. And he waved that around, saying that it was proof that he was uninvolved. How nice to have enough money to hire your own firm to do your polygraph for you. Yeah. And in the end, Ash was acquitted even on the civil charges. Yikes. Yeah. What a... What a turn this guy took. Because, like, I was on Ash's side yeah. at the end of episode one. I know. And he went from being, like, the the unsung hero that was championing his daughter's mysterious death to the villain. And this, this larger-than-life figure. It's strange how it happens. Well, the journalist Thomas Thompson had been closely following this case and published his book Blood and Money in 1976. He said that before publishing, he gave Ash a copy of the book and that Ash approved it. However, upon it being published, Ash sued him and his publisher for $20 million for libel. It sounds like he didn't read it. <laughs> Maybe, or he went ahead and, and had it published because he wanted to perhaps uh, wanted get, to get the, the $20 million yeah. suit. I don't know. But the suit was later dismissed. Ann Kurth also sued Thompson and the publisher for $3 million over her characterization in the book, but her suit was also thrown out. Right around the same time as Blood and Money came out, Ann published her own book called Prescription Murder. In it, Ann expanded upon her version of the events and detailed John's alleged abuse and his attempts to kill her. She also made a very bold, very strange accusation in this book. She claimed that she believed John faked his own murder by somehow having someone else killed in his place. And then he moved to Mexico, where he went on to live a full, rich life. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. I, I, what? <laughs> so he's just out there in Mexico doing plastic surgery and, you know, living on the living beach? Living on a beach, yes. Wow. That's what Anne claimed. What a claim. Well, Anne's book was turned into a made-for-TV movie called Murder in Texas, which came out in 1981. But Blood and Money wasn't made into the TV movie? No. It was her version. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> which is very strange to believe. Oh, we, missed, we missed the mark. We picked the wrong book to make the movie on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And it, it pulled down some huge stars. Joan was played by Farrah Fawcett. Wow. John was played by Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott? Yes. Ash was played by Andy Griffith. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, he was older at that time. That he, makes sense. He was yes, he was older. Um, and I think this was like a more very much more, a more serious sort of role yeah. for him. And Anne was played by Catherine Ross. Those are big names. Yes, they they really are. The movie follows Anne's book, so it ends with the insinuation that John faked his murder and was secretly alive and well. And by the way, Dr. Yahimchek, who knew John very well, as we know, he was involved all during Joan's murder investigation, who performed John's autopsy as well. He said that this is ridiculous. The corpse that he autopsied was absolutely John Hill. He, he knew him very, very well and was very familiar with him and knew that that was indeed John Hill. It's really sad because there was a potential there to make a really rad true crime movie that had a lot of the facts and truth. And they jumped the shark and went for the salacious and went material. with Anne's version. Yeah. yeah. In the late 70s, Ash tired of Houston and the awful memories of his lost daughter and grandson. He and Ray moved to Sarasota, Florida, where Ash died in 1985 at the age of 87. Ray died just two years later. Robert was raised by Connie. Eventually, he moved to the East Coast and became, of all things, a prosecutor. Good for him. Yeah. That's cool. He has led a very quiet life and has generally refused to speak publicly about the case. But he has been quoted as saying that he, too, rode horses competitively, just like his mother. And that was something that he was very proud of. It's not clear what, if any, kind of relationship Robert ever had with his grandparents. But it was reported that in the 80s, there was some kind of reconciliation before the deaths of Ash and Ray. Oh, well, that's weird. But it's very hard to sort of understand what could have possibly happened because I think most people understand that Ash probably had something to do with that's what John's death. I mean, it seems pretty clear he did. Yeah. And I th believe that would be very hard for Robert to forgive, especially for Robert having been eyewitness or ear witness to the murder. Very upsetting to believe that your grandfather was perhaps the one behind that. Okay, if Ash did plot all this out and he was trying to kill someone who did his daughter wrong and wanted to get Robert back into the custody of the family, why would you put Robert in that situation? Exactly. That shows a lack of empathy. Mm -hmm. That's that's a power move. That's somebody who has money and is mad and angry and doesn't have Robert's best interest in that moment. Yeah. Ugh. What a story. I know. But as far as the other characters in the case, we have a few other people I want to I want to just briefly mention. Lilla died from breast cancer at Gatesville Prison in 1986. She never once spoke ill of Ash Robinson. I don't think she ever admitted to knowing Ash or being involved in the murders at all. She always claimed her innocence. She was street smart, man. Marsha did appeal her sentence, but it was upheld. So the plan her lawyer got her degree to about her being able to get her charges thrown out later on, that did not work out. She served five years of the 10-year sentence and was released. She died in 2010 at the age of 60. Anne moved to Austin with her three boys, and she opened up a clothing shop. She passed away at the age of 59 from a sudden aneurysm in 1990. As far as Joan is concerned, her cause of death has never been identified. 
1980, Racehorse Haynes, one of John's attorneys, said that he discussed the matter with doctors, and he was now convinced that she died of toxic shock syndrome from tampon usage. What? And there was some evidence that Joan was on her period around the time of her death. But again, that's probably just another possibility to add to the list. We probably will never know why Joan died. Uh, But still, like toxic shock syndrome with tampon usage, that doesn't fit into John's behavior. Whether, you know, like... Not actually getting her care. Exactly. Exactly. The murder by omission, you know? I mean, like, there's something else going on there that we're never... It doesn't seem like we're going to have the answers for. Yeah. What a twisted, twisted tale that you have woven for us. (laughs) But... As twisted as it is, I feel like we have all of the roadmap of of everything that's happened here and all the important figures and how they're interconnected. Somebody's got to bring this to Hollywood and make it or like do a a better documentary or a better representation of it because it seems like a Guy Ritchie film, you know, where there's all these different factions and interplayers and rich people that have power and the dumb criminals that are trying to do things. Yeah. And I feel like it has to be a two-parter because we really are looking at two separate cases. We first have to look at Joan and what happened to her before really settling in on what happened to John. And um, that's why we had to do a two-parter. I really hope that you, you all enjoyed it. It's such a fascinating case. It's so complex and interesting. If you have not read Blood and Money by Thomas Thompson, incredible book, um, and a real classic. So I would highly recommend you check that out. Um, And this is just such an interesting, crazy case. Yeah. And I think that Joan and Robert were definitely the protagonists in our part one and part two. Yeah. And I really want to recognize like how much work you did on trying to cover both of those, those people and their story in these two parters because it's it's very important like obviously true crime we love the salacious like goofiness of of all the weird inner workings of how crimes happen but man my heart goes out to both of those people and it's so sad that we're not gonna ever know how joan died or the details of her murder and obviously everything that happened to robert i know robert's story is just so sad and i can't believe he became a prosecutor like good for him. I don't know what kind of law he was he was practicing or anything but I mean just obviously uh an incredible kid for going through what he did and, and yeah. being able to kind of rise above and lead his life and apparently you know is a, a really great guy as far as we've known. But what a fascinating story. So many ins and outs. Go read the book. Again, I have an Audible account. We're not sponsored by Audible, but I kind of want to go and see if I can use some of my credits to read that book because it sounds amazing. I mean, I have it. You can just read it. Well, I'll steal it from you. (laughs) But uh, wow. Okay. Well, we've reached the end of this two-parter and I feel I have closure on the story itself. We don't have an ending to the story, but we know everything now. So we're going to shut the door on the story and we're going to move on to something else. What do you think? Good news? I would love some pretty good news all around. Well, well, I hope you like Whataburger because... I'm a Texan. Of course I like Whataburger. All right. Well, we got some of that after this. All right.
right, everybody, welcome back to All Crime No Cattle. This is the good news section. You probably just heard a commercial, but let me tell you about a news story that comes to us from WFAA.com. Uh, this is WFAA ABC Channel 8 News, and the articles that I'm using for good news will be in the show notes. And uh, this article was written by Shauna M. Redding. Well, as most Texans from Austin to the Panhandle know, over a week ago, we had some major weather events that came through uh, the majority of the state that laid down a series of tornadoes that stretched up into Kansas and down into Austin. It was a huge wall of storms. And of course, there was a lot of damage that came along with those storms. Luckily, even with over 20 confirmed tornadoes touching down, there were only 10 injuries and sadly one death. But considering how extensive the storms were and the strength of those storms, the extent of the damage, those numbers are really low and we're really lucky that only one person died through all of that. Even so, during dark times, there is always some light to be had and many people nationwide began sharing a video that was captured in the town of Elgin about 40 minutes northeast of Austin. Storm chaser Brian M. Finger was videoing a twister along Highway 29 that he was chasing. He was kind of following this tornado. When out of nowhere, a red truck crosses into the funnel of said tornado. Like this truck just drives in, just haphazardly drives into a tornado. Yep. It's the, <laughs> it's the most wild thing I've seen. I mean, I think, certainly I think if you live in Texas, you've seen this video. But I believe yeah. that this video has made it sort of national oh, yeah. wide, right? Like oh, yeah. everybody's talking about this job. Definitely. I mean, it's <laughs> it's gone viral for sure. Yeah. Uh, quickly, the tornado snatched this red truck up and tossed it into the air, uh, into the air, and then onto its side, moved it around, mm -hmm. spun it, and then only to eventually pick the truck back up and put it onto its four wheels, like nothing ever happened. Yep. And then the truck just calmly drives away like nothing happened. Almost nonchalantly. <laughs> yes. You know, the driver of this red Chevy truck just put the car into gear and slowly just drives away. Yes. Tornado's still going on. Oh, yeah. And everybody was like, who is this person in this truck who has just the wherewithal to just be so calm to just drive away like nothing just happened after you just got whisked up in a tornado like yeah. Dorothy. Yeah, and, and clearly, even for Brian, someone who chases tornadoes for a living, uh, he was shocked by the behavior yes. of this truck. <laughs> and so he posted the video to his social media where it would ultimately go viral, uh, even causing a storm of jokes and memes to go along with it. Like, you know, this is... Uh, tornadoes happen across the United States, but this is how Texans deal with tornadoes. Exactly. You know? We're fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to drive away in our enormous Ford F-150s or whatever, yeah. that was, whatever it was. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, the mysterious driver of the truck was, was a big part of this viral video sensation. Like, who is this driver? Who are they? Everyone wants to know. Is this Batman? How are they so <laughs> cool and collected? Uh, turns out they were quickly identified as 16-year-old Riley Leon. And this was done when his brother, Jesus Arreo, saw the video on Facebook that was posted by the Storm Chaser and immediately recognized the family truck. This is a truck that was handed down from their father uh, to Riley, and he had taken over use of the car. So he was like, I know that car. That's my dad's car. That's my brother. And immediately he was very shocked, saying, that's my little brother and that car, you know. 
I'm really scared. I hope he's okay. But turns out Riley was fine. He, it was just a big scare. He got some cuts and there was some damage to the truck. And he told WFAA News, quote, When I landed on my wheels, my hands landed on my lap. I saw everything. I was like, probably nothing happened. I wasn't scared that much, but... How? <laughs> That's the scariest thing that would ever happen. It really is. So he lands and his hands are on his lap. And he said he wasn't scared too much, but it was a shocking moment for me. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was, but you're downplaying it, my man. Yeah, right? The truck didn't fare as well as Riley did, though. And the truck took a lot of damage. And this was a truck that he had been fixing up from his dad. So uh, it was really hard for him and sad. Now, additionally, besides the damage to the truck and Riley being a super brave and nonchalant soul... There's another addition to the the story that's quite interesting, and that's the fact that he was actually returning home from his interview at a Whataburger to get a job. Oh. Yeah. And originally when this story came out, people were saying, oh, he was on his way to an interview, and he drove through a tornado to get to the interview. But, but he the, was coming back home. He was coming back home the after the interview. Okay. So I want to make that clear, because a lot of people have misreported that. But I am happy to inform you that Riley did, in fact, get the job. And how could you not give him the job <laughs> after all this? Like, <laughs> his cool, calm, and collected demeanor, I mean, make him a manager. Absolutely. If you can deal with driving through a tornado. Then you can deal with the toppings on <laughs> your burger. Yeah, all the different combinations that Whataburger has where you can customize your yes, burger. cool there, under pressure. Yeah, there's nothing he can't handle. No. <laughs> He's got toppings on lockdown. Yeah, and I think we did another story about Whataburger with the goose or the geese that oh, had was babies eggs? Yeah. that was in the drive-thru. Uh -huh. So this is like our second good news that has Whataburger <laughs> like deeply entrenched into it. I'm not trying to make Whataburger the good news affiliate for fast food for the they show. Could, they should sponsor the show. Yeah, I would take it. But anyways, after the story broke and Riley's name got out in the news, he kind of became famous at school. And everybody at school started calling him by the name Tornado Boy. And, <laughs> oh, I kind of yeah. love that. Yeah, he gave this like really, you know, uh, quiet, subdued interview with the news. It's really funny because like he sounds like nothing was really a big deal. Yes. He's just very He's meek so calm. and calm about everything. <laughs> I, don't, I still don't get how you can be that calm about driving through a tornado. Mm -hmm. But... The good news, this is the good news. He got the job, he became famous, he was Tornado Boy, but then the red Chevy truck that he was driving, it was it was total. And it was purchased from a Fort Worth dealership that we know from commercials on the news as Bruce Lowry Chevrolet. And when they got wind of this story, they decided they were gonna do something special for the Brave Teen, and they agreed to buy him a brand new Chevrolet Silverado. Oh, dang. So, so he's got wow. a new job, and he's got a new truck, and he's Tornado Boy. <laughs> wow. I'm so happy for him. <laughs> I was so worried about that person in that car the first time I saw that video. Because yeah. I remember thinking, that's just terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Your mind would be so... And just watching that person calmly just drive. Just keep driving down the highway like nothing just happened. Yeah. It was just... It's such a crazy video. And to know that it was just like this kid coming home from his Whataburger job... 
yeah. just calm as can be. Just such a, a lovely, funny story. Mm-hmm. And of course, very happy that he was not injured and that every everything was okay. Yeah. And and I feel happy sharing this article and the, the good news notes and everyone should go see it if you haven't seen it because it's, yes. it's, it's, it's bizarre <laughs> how calm <laughs> this whole situation goes down. Well, congrats to Riley for sure. Yeah. Burgers and tornadoes. All right, friends. Thank you for coming back to the after show. You can find us on Twitter at ACNC Podcast and on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle. And you can find our Facebook group called ACNC Posse Discussion Group. And as always, if you want to check out more from All Crime No Cattle, and if you need a little extra fix, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cattle. We have extra episodes there. You can listen without commercials. There's merch, swag, stickers, shoutouts. And that is where we need to support some of the greatest people that support us. We need to give some shoutouts. And that's what we're going to do right now with some Texas Rangers at the highest tier. Thank you, Angel Moody, Don Maloney, Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer and Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Leah Darty, Lisa Layton, Mickey Sweet, Sarah Nicholson, and Ashley Parker. You guys rock. Thank you so much. You're our heart and soul. And I love you so much like a Whataburger after a tornado. God, now I want chicken tenders from Whataburger. No, you're the gravy <laughs> on the tenders. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, until next time, it's been fun. We've had a good time. We've learned some things. If you have questions, maybe we'll never have answers. Who knows? But until next time, always remember that crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>